Well, we are uh, starting with Genesis, and uh, we're going to be on a, a bit of a tour through the Old Testament. Uh, it will take us a while. It's not going to be overnight, of course, the Old Testament. Many books. Genesis, uh, three pages of notes I just handed you. You might want to keep these uh, handy. Bring them back next week if we're not done with Genesis today. Triple hole punch, put them in a three-ring binder. Just save them throughout the course of this class, uh, all the classes we do. And uh, you'll have a, a quick reference, a quick reference. You, you can use things like the MacArthur Study Bible, of course, but you've know, you got to find information in the paragraphs and see what's going on. Uh, it's handy to just have a set of notes where you can zoom real quick, find what you want. Okay, that's what I need to see. Who, you know, when was this book written, for example? Or what's the main outline? So I recommend that. Um, my family was making fun of me. They said, you know, adults don't do three ring binders and hole punches, but I do. I did it in seminary. My first, sem- my first semester, I didn't even have a laptop. And then everybody else had laptops. And I thought, man, I'm really, really looking old school here. So I, I thought it was better to take, you know, notes by hand. And, and it, it's proven that it does enter your mind better if you take notes by hand. But I couldn't keep up on the notes, so I got a laptop. Well, let me open in prayer. We begin our study of Genesis. Father, we know you inspired every book of the Bible. Truly, every word is beneficial to us. And I pray through this tour of the Old Testament, this survey, that you would just help us to remember the, the purposes for which you wrote these books, the purposes for which you inspired them. Help us to remember a bit of the organization, the structure of each book. And uh, on difficult verses, let us interpret rightly, exegete, the text properly. Help us have a love for your word, a love such that we want to read it regularly, daily. And I pray that you would work through this class to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully you are trying to read uh, each week as much as you can. Uh, I know Genesis is long, 50 chapters, but uh, if you could, if you could uh, scan through it at least each week uh, that we're doing a book, that would be helpful. And we're going to proceed right through the way our Bibles are ordered. You'll know if we finish Genesis today. But uh, if we don't finish Genesis, then you'll have another week to, to scan through it. A quick read, picking out the chapters and what's going on in each section as you work through it. Everybody got a copy of the notes? If you want a copy. All right. Genesis. Well, let's talk about some introductory material. Uh, the title of our Bible, or the book in our Bible, is Genesis. But in Hebrew, it's just called In the Beginning, which is one word in Hebrew. Barashit. Uh, and that's it. Every book of the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew, uh, Hebrew people just, whatever the first word is in that book, that's the name of the book for them. Later, when it was translated into Greek, that's called the Septuagint. A couple hundred years before Christ, it's translated into Greek. And the Greeks give it a different name. They try to summarize what the book is doing. And so they call it the origin, the source, Genesis. That's what the word Genesis means. Origin, source, generation. And it's not a bad name because if you look at, go to Genesis 2.4, it sort of calls itself that. Um, Genesis 2.4 and also 5.1. This is the account or the, the record, or the recording of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So this is a, a source 
of all things. God created all things. And this is a record of that from, from which things come. And then in 5.1, we get a repeated phrase here a few times in Genesis. It starts in 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then he goes on to talk about all the descendants of Adam on down and how they died and all the way down to the flood. So, And then it starts with uh, Noah again. Uh, Moses has a, a generations of those who came down all the way to Moses. So in a sense, it's a book of generations from Adam to Abraham and Joseph even by the end of Genesis. So it's not wrong to call it Genesis. That's why it's stuck in our Bibles in English. Uh, that's not inspired. You know, the titles aren't inspired by God. The original writings did not have a title on it. That's why Hebrew people called it by its first word. The same in the New Testament, by the way. People knew Matthew wrote it, so they just said, Gospel according to Matthew. But there's no evidence that those were divinely inspired. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Of course, liberals will tell you different people did. It was all written a thousand years after we think it was. It was Moses. It claims to be Moses, especially by the time you get to Exodus through Deuteronomy. And of course, Genesis being the beginning, uh, Moses is the only one who would have had that knowledge. Who could have written uh, the beginnings of all things unless it's the person who spoke with God on a regular basis? And so when Moses met with God, somehow he got this information or it was passed along from Adam until Moses by word of mouth. Some, some propose that view. I think that's difficult because we all mess up stories and things along the way. But it is possible that the major components were passed along by word of mouth and then Moses got the full scoop when he met with God regularly in the tabernacle. Uh, it's not clear how it came to Moses, but he wrote it and it's inspired by God. It's always been seen as that. The theme is beginning or covenants. There's a lot of important covenants mentioned or generations. As I've shown you, the generations, the they're called toledos, the record of who begat who, begat who, on down the line. So what is the purpose, though? This is key for us as believers. What's, what's the reason God put it there? What's the reason God inspired Moses to write it? Well, it describes the origin of the human race. You guys see that? It's kind of small. Describes the origin of the human race, the introduction of sin into the world, the confusion of languages, and the divine choice of Israel. So I would say if I had to pick one major one, it's, it's leading up to the divine choice of Israel. You go from Adam, all mankind, by the end of the book you're down to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So he's narrowing it down so he can get to Exodus and talk about how God redeemed them out of Egypt. But before that, we have to talk about where did things come from? That's a question everybody has. Where did all this come from? How was it made? And then sin, where did sin come from? If God is perfect and he created all things, where did sin come from? And then what happened with the first uh, man and woman? Why do we all speak different languages? All of that is in Genesis. So there's a lot to look at there. We won't be looking at every bit of it. But here's a basic outline. It's on your notes there. And feel free to write in what you, they're your notes, so write extra things on there. Uh, first major section of Genesis is the primeval history. Primeval meaning long time ago, we don't even know exactly 
the details other than what God has told us. It's hard for us to even date it exactly. What happened in those first 11 chapters? By the way, what's, what's the section of Genesis that's most ridiculed and most doubted and most um, tried to get around as far as scholars go? This section right here. Creation, the fall, the flood, and even the confusing of nations. But especially the creation, the fall, and the flood. There are reams of paper. Lots of ink has been spilled on just trying to figure out how we can get around what the Bible says on those first three issues right there. So first two chapters are on creation. God wanted to let us know about creation, how he created, uh, what he was doing. He wanted to teach us the order there. He wanted to show us some things. Then he wanted to show us how man and woman fell, how they sinned. Where did sin come from? How we're all descendants of Adam, therefore we can trace our heritage, our sin heritage, even all the way back to our first parents. And what was the result of that? And then, of course, how after even Adam and Eve, sin continued to, to abound, and then the flood came upon the earth, and God judged. He wanted to teach us about the judgment, that God will judge sin, that he will not let the earth continue on forever and ever. And it was just a, really a preview for end times judgment, the final judgment, which will be by fire. This one was by water. And then, of course, the covenant that he made with Noah after that, and then eventually the nations. Where did all the nations come from? Why do they speak different languages? If we're really all one, if we're all one in Adam, how did we end up so different? Different languages, different skin colors, different nationalities, different cultures. That's explained in Genesis. Section 2, the bigger section there, is now narrowing it down. So all mankind gets narrowed down to Abraham and his descendants starting in chapter 12. That's when Abraham comes in to the story. Abraham's a pagan. Abraham is not a godly man because he did not even know God. Abraham did not earn his righteousness because God chose him first and told him to leave. And then Abraham, of course, left because he already had faith at that point. And he leaves and God blesses him. God makes promises to him. God makes a covenant with him. So 13 chapters there on Abraham. Then Isaac, his son. Only a couple, two or three chapters there. And then Jacob. Jacob gets a large section. Jacob was a scoundrel. You know, Jacob's a, he's a scoundrel. A great example of how God can save scoundrels. And even after they're saved, they still can be scoundrels sometimes. And then Joseph. Joseph gets as much as Abraham. We don't often think, you know, we think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, because those are the patriarchs. But the story of Joseph takes up as much as Abraham. And it's really leading us up to the Exodus. How God took his people out of the promised land that he had promised Abraham. And he put them in Egypt, but he persevered them. He protected them. He blessed them. And they multiplied. And they did quite well with Joseph. And then suddenly we enter into the next book and things are different in Exodus. So two sections, primeval and patriarchal. Patriarchal is not a bad word. I know modern, modern lingo, right? Nobody wants to be patriarchal. But patriarch just means fathers. And it usually has to do with older, more, more ancient. Where, where, where does the nation of 
the Jews, Israel, come from, the patriarchs, the ones that God spoke to directly and made a covenant and made a promise with them. So let's look at some key dates. Genesis was written by Moses in the years following the Exodus. Well, we, we know where that, when that is. When was that? 1445 B.C. We know because there are different timelines in the New Testament that tell us. They were in Israel so long, then, I mean in Egypt for so long, and then Moses led them out, and then they came to the land, and it was so many years until King David. So we can just trace that back. Written by Moses in the years following the Exodus. So the Exodus happens in 1445 B.C. They go out into the desert, how long? Forty years. When did he write it in those 40 years? He doesn't tell us. But he dies before they go in to the promised land at the end of 40 years. So it has to be before his death, and it takes place after the Exodus. So in the desert at some point, I think God is revealing things to him, and he's writing these things down and recording it. Eventually they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. So those scrolls are put in the Ark of the Covenant along with Amana and Aaron's staff. What's the date of creation? There are people that have tried to figure it out, and, and I do agree that God has, seems to have put dates and timelines and how long people lived in the first few chapters. So there does seem to be some reason God put that there. But also seems that occasionally they'll, they'll skip, Moses will skip a generation and go from a father you know, to that, to that man's grandson. We don't know how many are skipped, probably not more than a couple. So the maximum it would be about 10,000 years from now. Minimum, about 5,000. So, I'm okay with anywhere in that range. I, I probably fall more closer to the 5,000. I don't think there were that many generations skipped. You read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He proposes more, more generations being skipped in the, um, the role of sons, begat sons. Um, but I think closer to 5,000. Flood, we don't know the date of it. We can estimate. We can estimate if we work backwards from Abraham. But, uh, you know, it wasn't too long before Abraham. It wasn't too, too much previous to Abraham that the flood occurred. We often think there are large gaps in there, just in our mind. But when we read the text, we realize that, you know, Abraham probably was born not too long after Noah died. It wasn't thousands and thousands of years between Noah's death and Abraham's birth. And then we do know dates pretty close on Abraham. Uh, somewhere around 2165 B.C. to 1990 B.C., based on what's recorded with his travels, based on what's going on in the ancient world at that time, we can narrow it down. So the closer we get to Christ, the easier it is to narrow these down. Joseph, based on what's going on in Egypt, the fact that conditions have to be such that he could be raised up to power there, that God providentially works these things, uh, probably 1914 B.C., to 1804 BC. So those are important dates, important dates for us to consider, to think about when is God doing these things. It wasn't millions of years ago. It wasn't hundreds of thousands of years ago. It was still a long time ago for us, from our standpoint. But these are real people in history that God is interacting with, that God is blessing, that God is choosing, that God is saving. We'll talk more about the debate about creation and stuff in a moment. Just summarizing the chapters, the key chapters throughout the, the book. You should be familiar with this if you've been a Christian a while. You have to read Genesis. If you've never read Genesis from front to back, you have to. It's where all things are, are introduced to us. 
and the Bible. So chapter 1 is creation in the broad perspective. Generally, here's what happened. And then the second chapter is now zooming in on the creation of man. The creation of mankind, Adam and Eve. Giving us some details about God's pinnacle of creation. Sometimes people get confused and, and that's where a lot of these theories of creation come up. is because they think, well, you know, there's a creation in chapter 1 and then there's another creation in chapter 2. Or they'll try to just do weird things with chapters 1 and 2. No, it's chapter 1, big picture. You know, chapter 2, zooming in. Like those videos that start in space and they go down to the earth and then they go down to the molecules, molecular structure. That's what God's showing us with that. And then 3 is temptation, the fall, curses. How, how does work end up being such a, a curse for us? Why is it so hard? Why do women have to go through pain in childbirth? Uh, that's there in chapter 3. Adam and Eve fell because Eve listened to Satan. Uh, she was tempted. She took of the fruit that she wasn't supposed to. She knew uh, evil then. And of course, you know, the man went right along with her. He, he was there. He decided not to stop it. But he dove right in. Basically, he chose his wife over God. And then they both fell together. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel. And then Cain's line leads to the founding of many cities. So really, the first cities in the Bible are established by Cain's line. doesn't mean all cities are evil. But uh, it does mean that there was a reason they established those cities, not just for protection, not just for commerce. Uh, although Cain probably was thinking protection. Remember, he was very worried about what people would do to him when they found out he had killed his brother. So Cain kills Abel. Why? Why does Cain kill Abel? Because he was jealous. He was envious. He had sin in his heart, the Bible says. Chapter 4 is, is key about how just God blessing somebody else more than us can lead to sin, can lead to murder. They were brothers. Cain rises up. He, he kills Abel. Um, 6 through 8, that's the flood. Of course, one family, Noah's family, is delivered. You know, we've been talking about election. We've been talking about God's grace the last few weeks in the sermon. And, he, and here's a great example. Noah, yeah, he was a godly man, but, but God only saved one family. Why? Because everyone else was sinful. Everyone else had evil desires in their heart. And even though they saw Noah building this ark for years, decades, long time, they, had, they probably just laughed. And they had evil desires in their heart. When God takes them through this flood, it rains for 40 days, and then and Noah's on the, the ark after that as the water dries. And then they land, they plant a vineyard. Uh, sin, is, of course, shows up once again with drunkenness. And then God makes that covenant, though, with Noah. That's important. The covenant is that God will never destroy the earth again in that way, and that we have some stability on this earth. That we can look at the rainbow and know that God's not going to flood the earth. That's what the rainbow's there for. That God is not going to flood the earth again, and he's not going to judge before the end, before Christ returns, is how we would say it. So that's a promise. That means there's going to be seasons. That means there's going to be uh, periods of growth. And that means there's going to be things that we can build our society on, um, even though people have now moved away from many of the truths and turned things like the rainbow into something else. Babel, the nations are dispersed. Why, why did they disperse? Well, science 
scientific textbooks, I should say, not science, but scientific textbooks will say it was to be, you know, to, to hunt more of herds. They went across land bridges into North America, and Ice Age and such. Well, it's no doubt if God wants to, he can use land bridges and ice and, and glaciers or whatever, but the Bible just says they were dispersed as a curse. It was a curse. They were all gathered together. They said, we are so great. The flood has just happened. And they say, we are so great. We're going to make a city, going to make a tower for ourselves. And it's going to reach up to heaven. I think they were trying to say, we're going to be like God. God's in heaven. And we can make something so great. We'll be, it'll be like we're in heaven. And God, of course, cursed that uh, by sending them out in all directions and confusing their language. Or you could read it as he confused their language, therefore they, they had to spread in all directions because they were going to be fighting with each other because they weren't able to understand. Either God intentionally dispersed them or the language confusion itself dispersed them. Either way, it can be understood. Uh, Twelve is Abraham. The covenant is established. God said he would bless Abraham, give him land, give him a seed, give him uh, more, more people, more descendants than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the heaven. Chapters 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Great sin right there of homosexuality. And it's not just hospitality. Sometimes people today will say, well, it wasn't, really wasn't homosexuality. It was just hospitality. They weren't hospitable. Well, it was both. But the, the big sin that they're going to be judged for is the homosexuality that is just rampant. So rampant that a visitor could come into this huge city and they want to all rape them. They're angels. That was a big mistake on their part, but... God judged them, destroyed the city. Again, a picture of, of destruction, of judgment. It should bring fear into our hearts that God would, would deem uh, a sinful city worthy of that kind of judgment. We should be reminded of who God is. It should draw us to his character, who he is. Isaac offered up? What's Isaac offered up uh, a picture of? Jesus. I heard, the, I heard Jesus. Yeah. If, if you, by the way, if you don't know the answer to a question in church, you just say, Jesus. Jesus. And sometimes it'll be wrong, and I'll just tell you, but you're more likely to be right than wrong. Um, Isaac's offered up. That's a picture of Christ. This is Abraham's son. God tells him to take Isaac to go up on the mountain to offer him up as a sacrifice. It's very strange. Very, you know, modern readers say that's, that's you know, human sacrifice, evil God. We're not worshiping that God. Well, God wasn't intending it. All along, he intended for this not to go through. It was a test for Abraham. Abraham knew that. It was a test because what does he tell his, his servant? We'll be back. Right? We'll be back. Both of us will be back down this mountain. And he knew. He knew that God was going to provide a sacrifice when they got up there. And that's what happens. But it was a test for Abraham and a picture of son, a son, a beloved son, the only son, being put up for a um, sacrifice. All right, well, the only Son of the covenant, I should say. The 32, Jacob wrestles with God. A servant of God, a man who loves God, a man saved, wrestles with God. There's a lot of strange stuff going on there. It's hard for us to understand how can a man wrestle with God or an angel or, or probably the pre-incarnate Christ. That's just difficult for us to understand. But there's a, there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there that we, we can't just have our own way. We can't do what we want. We can try to wrestle with God, but who's going to win? Who's going to win? And then there's a reminder after that of the covenant and how God has chosen to, to bless Abraham and his descendants. Then Joseph sold by his brothers and then 
Jacob blesses his sons at the end of chapter 49. Key passages. Lots of key passages, of course. Sixth, sixth day of creation. Why is that important? Mankind. Mankind created. Sixth day of creation. Very important. Uh, and then he comes back. Creation is declared very good. Wow, there's quite a bit of theology packed in that. If, if, it, if creation's very good, what does that teach us? God's very good. There was nothing uh, sinful before man sinned. So it's not God's fault that we sin. And that he designed it all to be very good. And that, that creation's not evil. You see, the, the pagans all believe, even today, and sometimes this go, comes into Christianity, it sneaks into Christianity, that creation's evil. The body's evil. We're going to float away on a cloud in a spiritual existence. But no, we're going to be resurrected in the flesh. We're going to have our own bodies in heaven. And heaven's going to be upon the earth, a real earth. So creation's very good. And God's going to restore it to what it should have been in the beginning when Adam and Eve ruled and reigned over it. 2.24, a man shall leave, cleave, and weave. That's a old uh, King James. Why is that important? Well, it describes marriage. Marriage is not in the Bible, you know. People say it's not in the Bible. Where's the, where's the pastor and the church and the witnesses? You know, it's not like our weddings today. Well, those things aren't even in Scripture as biblical weddings. But this is, this is a wedding. Uh, because God's there as their witness, and he's making it happen, and he's also serving as the, the one who brings them together. So um, they're married. And then before they even have any parents, they don't have parents at that point. There will be parents in later generations. He says, you know, a man shall leave his mother and father. He shall, he shall cleave, and they shall be one flesh. So we have marriage there before sin. We have physical intimacy before sin. The idea of uh, having children even. It's, it's not happened yet, but the idea is there. These things happen before sin enters the world. That's different. The Catholic Church teaches that the weaving, the physical intimacy, is after the fall. That it's a sinful act. Augustine taught that. But we have God's intention right there. And then 315, uh, the promised seed, which we'll come to in a moment. The promised seed right there in 3.15. It's a snippet. It's a little preview of the gospel that's coming that will be revealed throughout the Old Testament and very clear in the New Testament. Just a little, just a little preview. A proto-gospel. 6.1-4, the sons of God. We're going to talk about this as an interpretive issue. If you were in my theology class uh, last year, we talked about this. Who were those sons of God that were there before the flood? What were they doing with the, the women on the earth? And how did they have these Nephilim children? And What's going on there? That's a key chapter. It teaches us about, I think, angels. And it teaches us about how God will judge not only angels, but mankind as well for their sin. Abrahamic Covenant 12, 1 through 3. Let's just read that. That's important. This will be what the gospel is established upon, Christ's ministry. He comes to fulfill much of this. And when he comes back, he'll fulfill all of it. Genesis 12, 1-3, Now the Lord said to Abram, so this is before he was called Abraham by God, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. So that's the first blessing. He's going to make him a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. So he's going to make him a great nation. Many descendants, in other words. He's not talking about military might necessarily, but just many descendants. 
And that would have surprised Abram. He ended up taking a long time just before Isaac was born. And then number three, second blessing, I will bless those who bless you. So God's going to choose Abraham. He's going to give him his grace. And he's going to not only do that, but bless people who bless Abraham, who bless that nation. If you attack Israel when it's God's covenant people in the Old Testament, then you're going to suffer. And God will use his covenant nation to punish other nations like the Canaanites. And then the third one, uh, the third promise there is at the end of verse 3. And then in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Who's that pointing to? What's that pointing to? In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You can't say that happened in Abraham's life because, you know, sometimes he, he sinned too, didn't he? He lied. He let his wife go off and marry Pharaoh and marry another king, Abimelech. And he, just, he can't seem to, to be perfect. Of course, none of us can. But eventually, from his family line, from you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How? How does that happen? In Christ. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is the descendant of Abraham. And all Gentiles are then brought in. Not every single person who's ever lived, but every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's the only way that Gentiles really could come in. Some did in the Old Testament, but it was very rare. How's God going to save the world? How's God going to save his elect all around the world? Through Abraham's descendant, which is Christ. Uh, chapter 39, 9 through 12, Jacob becomes Israel. So the, where does the name Israel come from? It's another name for Jacob. Then it becomes the name for the nation. So Jacob's name is Israel. Then all his sons make up the nation. That's who gets eventually taken down to Egypt. And they become the nation of Israel. So imagine the people sitting on maybe the plains of Moab or wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And they want to know where they came from. You remember when in Exodus, Moses has to go to them and tell them who their God is. They've heard of their God. They know about Abraham, but they're not real clear on who this God is, how the history of their nation has come to be. Now he's going to tell them in this book of Genesis. And he's going to trace the lineage all the way down through Abraham to Jacob to Jacob's sons. And this is a key passage when we're talking about God's sovereignty. Genesis 50 Verse 20, let's look at that. Genesis 50. It's near the end of the book. All this sin has come about since Adam and Eve. Even God's chosen nation is suffering. They're, they're in Egypt. The other brothers are starving, so they have to go down and humble themselves before Joseph. And they wonder, how did this all come about? We're so sorry for, for being uh, sinful. They're scared for their lives. Joseph has been blessed. And look what he says in verse 20. As for you, talking to his brothers, you meant, it, you meant evil against me. So even God's holy people are sinning? Yeah, they meant evil against their brother. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result. To preserve many people alive. So here it is, the end of Genesis. Sin has affected mankind and, and been punished in the flood. Then sin comes back in through Noah's family and, and even in God's covenant line through Abraham. And yet at the end of the chapter, it says, you know what? God's sovereign over it all. 
Even when mankind sins, even when mankind desires to do evil and does it, it's all ultimately for God's purpose. He, he brings good for those who love him. Where's that? Romans 8, 28 through 30. He brings about good. Why? For his purposes to the people who love him. He has a purpose behind it all. Everything that's happened in Genesis, he has a purpose from creation up until this point in our history. Key people. Y'all ready for a quiz on this? The answers are right there on the screen, so you shouldn't get anything wrong. Adam and Eve, the first humans. I mean, this isn't hard. I know it's not taught in schools, and it's almost denied in some, it is denied in some churches, but Adam and Eve, they're named, they're real people, first humans. Which means we all have a common parent, which means this idea of different skin colors being uh, separated, different races and such. Really, there's one human race. There's one human race. And there was originally one language and one culture. Of course, God in his providence has divided that up. Cain, Adam's first son, the murder of his brother Abel. Abel murdered, uh, was murdered by uh, Cain. So the murdered second son of Adam. Enoch. Remember Enoch? He was the one that was caught up with God. Father of Methuselah walked with God, never died, but was taken up. He was snatched away. That sort of sounds like the rapture in the New Testament, doesn't it? Snatched away, caught up, just gone. He never went through the process of death. Uh, I, I would imagine, well, we don't speculate too much, but he either got his new body there immediately or he's waiting. I, I tend to think that it's, he's still waiting on it because Christ had to come, but we'll not speculate too much. Um, Noah walked with God, built the ark, father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then... Uh, Canaan, the grandson, was cursed. Noah cursed him. But it was God who ultimately was cursing him. Uh, Shem, that's Noah's oldest. Uh, ancestor of Abram, Abraham. Nimrod, the hunter, the great king. Founder of cities, son of Cush. So if you took my, my class, not this past summer, but the previous, we did empires in the Bible. We started with Egypt and we went through Babylon and Assyria. It's thought that Nimrod founded the whole Babylon Assyria area, and he did. He founded the, the first cities in that area. But they even looked back to Nimrod and sort of worshipped him as a god. And so especially with the Assyrians, he was their he was their founder god, they thought. Uh, Terah, Abraham's father, he left Ur for Haran with Abraham. Abraham's the father of the nation Israel. Lot's Abraham's nephew dweller in Sodom. So God still blessed Lot. He still rescued him out of Sodom. What was Lot doing there in the first place? And remember, Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. There's a lesson there for us as Christians. Don't look back. Don't look back to sin. Don't look back to your old life. God's rescued you out of it. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus says. So if you've never read Genesis, this will help you learn about these people. If you have, this should be a review. Or maybe there's some things you've, you've forgotten there since you've read it. Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother. Melchizedek, priest, king of Salem. Why is Melchizedek important in the New Testament? Yeah, he, he gives an example of how there's a line of priests outside of Aaron. Because Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. He's not from the priestly line. So how can he be considered the high priest? Well, in Hebrews, the answer is, he's like, Melchizedek, 
There's a different order of priests. In other words, God can have a different pathway to priesthood. It's rare. It only happens with Melchizedek and Christ, but it can still happen. And that's the, the argument made in Hebrews, or one of the arguments. Isaac's the son of Abraham and Sarah, father of Jacob, the one that they thought wouldn't come, the one they had when they were very old, past childbearing years, so it's miraculous that, that God opened her womb. And uh, they did other sinful things to try to produce an heir. And uh, they just needed to wait and be patient. Esau, Isaac's firstborn, he sold his birthright. As an example in the New Testament in Hebrews of, of someone who has all the blessings right there in front of them, but they basically sell it. They throw it away. And he couldn't get it back later. Even when he, he, he craved it back, he couldn't get it. He had gotten rid of it. He had thrown it away. It was nothing. A, a bowl of hot soup, hot stew was more important to him. Rebecca's Isaac's wife, favored, favored by Jacob. Uh, Jacob, also called Israel, father of the 12 tribes. So where did the 12 tribes come from? Those are the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph being the one that's sold into slavery and goes down to Egypt. Leah, Jacob's less loved first wife. You've got to read that story. I mean, that's, that's key. You know, you have, you have this scoundrel, Jacob, and then he gets tricked by another scoundrel that ends up being his father-in-law, and he ends up marrying the two sisters. And The whole thing is just a description of, even though God is working and blessing and bringing about his promises, people keep sinning. There's no heroes except for Christ in the Bible. There's no heroes. Paul's not a hero because he, he sins. Peter's not a hero. He sins. Now they are raised up by God. They are uh, blessed by God, but there's nobody that's perfect. Uh, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, mother of Joseph, dies bearing Benjamin. And then Joseph, son of Jacob, sold as a slave, exalted in Egypt. What are some helpful resources? Well, there's a lot of them out there. Unfortunately, none of them get the first section of Genesis right according to the Bible. And so if you wanted to get those commentaries, you could. You're just going to spend hundreds of pages with all the speculation and liberal scholarship and such. I recommend these books. The first two just deal with, with creation. Uh, MacArthur's book, The Battle for the Beginning, he did a sermon series on creation and then turned that into a book. It's a really good book. It's a good sermon series, but it's an excellent book. It's a good resource to have. The Battle for the Beginning. And he doesn't just talk about creation, but what's happened in Christianity in the last couple hundred years as far as people rejecting the biblical account of creation. Another book that focuses more on just what's going on in the early chapters of Genesis, Mortensen and Yuri, there were editors. This is a little bit more scholarly of a book, but Coming to Grips with Genesis. It's a good resource to have. Coming to Grips with Genesis deals with what does the text say. That's where we have to start. Before we consider what science says today, before we consider what textbooks in school say, what Christians sometimes say, what does the Bible say? And then Alan Ross, Creation and Blessing is probably the best overall just commentary on Genesis. Although I think he does some strange things with, with creation, it's still probably the best overall. So uh, if, if I was to preach through Genesis, this would be one of my go-to commentaries. It doesn't have any Hebrew words in it or anything. It's easy to access, but it's a big, big fat book. 
All right, one of my favorite parts, selected interpreted problems. This was my favorite in seminary. Uh, I knew something about the books of the Bible. Now, that was very helpful. Don't get me wrong. You have to know the content, but there's a lot of passages that are debated. There's a lot of passages that take work to figure out what's going on. And when we do our um, Men's Institute for Church Leadership every other Sunday night, and we're going through, right now, the New Testament, we also look at some of these selected interpretive problems. How do we... How do we solve these issues? How should we think about it? One that you may not think is a big deal, and it's really not when we consider the big scheme of things, is how is it laid out? What's the structure? So if you were to go to a Bible study or maybe teach a Bible study on Genesis, you would have to think about how did, how did Moses have it in his mind to organize this? I, I don't believe the writers of Scripture just, they were listening God whispered and they were writing. Dictation is not the method the Bible describes. They were moved by the Holy Spirit in their heart. And when you set out to write a book or a letter in the New Testament, for example, or a gospel account, there has to be some organization. And you see that in, in Scripture. We'll see it in the passage that, that is in the sermon today with Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So is it organized best to think of it organized by the generation list? Because there's a few of those. Or by biographical material. Adam and Noah, the first 11 chapters, and Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph. What do you guys think I'm going to choose on that one? Since I've already covered it. Organized by biographical material. I think, I think that's the best way. It wouldn't be wrong to select A um, if, if you wanted to. Usually, usually people who are really into Hebrew stuff, sometimes even those who are Judaizers want to focus more on this, the generation list. That's, that's important, but I think there's a, there's a danger in getting too focused on generations. The New Testament warns about that. They were all arguing over who was the descendant of Moses, for example. Those are important. Those help us. Those teach us that you know, all mankind dies after Adam. They're, just, they're one after the other. Adam dies and all his descendants are dying and the generations are getting shorter and it teaches us how to get down to these people over here on the right, but I think it seems to be organized best by structure. Okay, now jumping into some interpretive issues based on text. The first 11 chapters. What's the best way to interpret that? Is it a myth? In other words, it didn't really happen? That's one view out there, that it's a myth, that it's just God telling us a story to teach us a lesson, but it didn't happen? Or is it symbolic theology? It's not even a myth. It's not even a story. It's just, it's just a theological writing to teach us about God and how great He is and how He created the world. But we shouldn't take it to be historical. We shouldn't take it to have actually happened in that order that it describes. And then the last way is historical narrative. What do you guys think I'm going to choose on this one? Is it that obvious? Why? Because of all of these things here, 64 ge geographical terms are mentioned in Genesis in the first 11 chapters. 64. These rivers are called this. These cities are named this. 88 personal names. If you're telling a myth, you don't typically have that many names. You might have one name for the main character. But there's 88 people that are given personal names there. 48 generic names. 
21 cultural items, woods, metals, buildings, musical instruments. And then the biggest one for us, the New Testament confirms these people and these events. Jesus, in the beginning, he made them male and female. Who's he talking about? There's only one male and female, uh, one, you know, one male, one female in the beginning. He's talking about Adam and Eve. He's confirming that they were real people. Paul talks about that uh, creation. Uh, Peter talks about it in his letters. Jesus spends a lot of time confirming Genesis 1 through 11. Noah is mentioned in in Peter's letters. The flood is mentioned and the ark is mentioned. These are real historical events and people. Not myths, not symbols. God could have told us uh, uh, some other myth without names and terms. What's the understanding, though, of the first five verses? First five verses. Is it the gap theory? That there's a big gap between verse 1 and 2. Billions of years. So God, God sort of created the rocks and the water and the life. Or not life. Uh, no, He just created the rocks and the water. And then just verse 2 happens a billion, four billion years later. That's the gap theory. Uh, recreation understanding. Somebody had asked me about this the other day and I had forgotten that it came up in seminary briefly. Um, This is the idea that God created the world and then at some point, some would say he even created life and it all went bad and so he started over. But more scholarly writings would say he created something and then by the time we get to verse 1 of Genesis, he's recreating that something. So maybe he created rocks and water and the sky air and such and then he's coming back in verse one and reworking that into something new recreation the original creation understanding that's just taking it literally i think that's obvious i'm going to go with that one hopefully you will too that's the most literal reading of the bible it's it's meant to be history if we solve that issue then how do we understand it well, the original creation understanding. I think I have some reasons for that coming up soon on the meaning of the word day. What's the meaning of Ruach Elohim? What's the meaning of the Hebrew term Ruach, which means spirit or wind, and then Elohim being a name for God in Hebrew? So the wind or spirit of God, should we understand it as wind or spirit is what the debate is? Normally, our Bible is translated as the Spirit of God hovered or was over the waters. Some say, well, that's not really Spirit, but wind. There was a mighty wind over the waters. And there is a, a mighty wind, a wind of God mentioned in Exodus, because that's what opens up the water so they can walk across. A mighty wind from God blew, separated the waters, and they could walk through the Red Sea. Or the Reed Sea, Red Sea, Red Sea. Um, the breath of God. Wind, breath, spirit, it's all the same word in Hebrew. So how do we interpret this best? I don't think sea is a valid one because breath of God is used for life. It's used for when he breathes into the dust and and Adam becomes a living creature, a living person. Uh, The context is really, why would there need to be a mighty wind mentioned? It's got to be the Spirit of God. And I think the idea there is that the, the Trinity, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all there. They're all there. God spoke through the Word. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. So the Word is there, that's the Logos, the Christ. The Father's there, creating. The Spirit's there, acting. We don't really know what exactly the Spirit is doing, but He's there. He's there. They're all there in creation, all persons of the Trinity. Okay, here's the big one. The meaning of day, called yom, the word is yom in Hebrew. What's the meaning of a day? Because, you know, sometimes we say, back in my day, which isn't one day, right? Back in Carl's day, he walked uphill both ways in the snow just to get to school 10 miles away. He's not talking about February 12th, 1912, right? He's talking about... <laughs> he's talking about... Oh, sorry, I'm my math. 62, right? Um, he's talking about a span of time. So sometimes, a few times in the Bible, that's used. But it is used without a number in front of it. That's a little hint where we're going. But is, it, is day a 24-hour day theory? Because it does say evening and morning. So if it's not 24 hours, that makes it really challenging. How do we deal with evening and morning? You know, if, if let's say some of these other theories, uh, a day is maybe a million years. How do you have an evening and morning in a million years? Like, is that the beginning of the million years and the end? That's really, that's hard. There's a numerical adjective. So every time elsewhere in Scripture that a numerical adjective is used, the, the, the word, a uh, number is in front of it, the first day, second day, for 40 days they were in the wilderness. Every time the number is put in front of it as an adjective, it's meant to be 24-hour period. And then 2011, Exodus 2011. Go to that. This is key interpretive issue. And this is the key verse to help us. I think we should take it literally regardless. But by the time we get to Exodus 2011, if we were still wondering, Moses is going to clear it up for us. He's speaking to the people. He's teaching them. He's, he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. Or he has already done so. And then verse... No, he's about to. He's about to in verse 12 and 13. Look at verse 8, uh, Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Sabbath day is what? 24-hour day. So he talks about that. Six days you're going to work. Sabbath day. Okay, and then verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested. So here's the perfect example for you Israelites. God worked for six days. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Sabbath day is 24 hours. We work backwards. God worked six days, and then there was a Sabbath rest for him. It's got to be 24-hour periods. If the Sabbath day is 24-hour period, then working backwards, by, by logic, it has to... It doesn't work, in other words, for Moses to say, for six billion years, God created... But then on the Sabbath, which was just a 24-hour period, he rested. They have to, the, the word day has to be consistent in that paragraph or it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So if I said to you, today is the Lord's day and it's the day that we meet together in the church. But the previous six days, which I really mean million years, we've been working at our jobs. It doesn't compute. I have to use the word day similar or indicate that it's different. And so the context there is a 24-hour period. And so really we could just cross out theory. I only put theory there 
and it's usually listed like this in uh, choices because we want to respect the other sometimes believers that are confused on um, their views. But really, I don't think it's a theory. Um, it's just taking the text literal. Okay, day-age theory. So some of these views I hadn't even heard of, like the uh, day-age theory is basically that each, um, each day represents a certain number of years, period of time. could be thousands of years on each 24-hour day, or it could be um, billions of years in each day. So it's not specifying necessarily a time, but just saying each of those six days of creation represents some huge time span. The intermittent day theory, C, intermittent day, is that each day has a large period of time, but they vary. They vary. So the first day, the first day of creation was a billion, four billion years. Second day was maybe a few thousand. The third day, you know, you just it's intermittent and it goes down uh, smaller and smaller. D, the revelatory day theory, not one that you probably these last. Well, D and F aren't very common, but they're out there. Revelatory day theory. Uh, they really six days. Forget about it because it was just a way for God to reveal creation to us. It was a, it was a, a device, a description, a picture of the what He's doing. But it's not meant to be taken literally. They say six days just a way of communicating how great. God is as creator. So, in other words, he wants to tell us about creation, so he put it in the terms we can understand of six days. That's why he used that phraseology. The literary framework is very popular amongst uh, evangelicals, amongst Protestants. They say that it's not chronological at all. The first six days mentioned there of creation is not meant to be taken in order, but it's just a literary way to show how great creation was. And there is some literary elements in all of Scripture. And even in creation, you can, you can do some interesting things and line them up. You know, uh, God said that the earth was formless and void, and then line it up with day four of creation when there's something on the earth that's no longer like that. So, yes, there are some literary eloquence there, but not a framework for us to understand creation. Creation, based on the text, is meant to be taken literally. And so I can sympathize with it, but I don't think that it's accurate. I don't think that it's right, especially when they say that there's no chronology listed. There is a chronology. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, and so on. And the last one's the analogical day. This is only one guy. I can't remember his name. I think it's Hughes or... No, Ross. What's the guy? Ross? You know who I'm talking about? Hugh Ross? Is it Hugh Ross? Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross uh, has come up with the analogical day theory, and uh, he does a lot of conferences and churches and stuff. He says it's just an analogy that God uh, said six days because Israel worked six days, and then since God worked, it's just kind of an analogy but not an exact one. So man worked six days, God worked. How are they going to understand it? I'll just describe it like they know. Six days, I'll make an analogy. Again, not describing necessarily the length of how long it took. Which one am I going to choose? 24-hour day theory. 24-hour day theory. Do you have a question? Well, I was just going to say that the last thing you were saying about Hugh Ross, doesn't that just make God a liar then? In a sense? Uh, that mean they wouldn't say that? Yeah, they wouldn't say it like that. I think, um, yeah, we want to be kind. I, I do think... 
if you read his stuff, he's not very good at interpreting the Bible and exegeting the text. Um, well, I don't know about that, but uh, he, I think he's, he might be seminary trained somewhere, but I, I don't recall. Um, anyway, a lot of these views are dealing with what does science say today about it? What, is, what do scientific textbooks and classes teach? How do we sort of make that work out with Scripture? But as Christians, we've got to go to the text first. We've got to interpret the text appropriately. And then, and only then, do we think about what people say today. Because God is our ultimate authority. God is our final authority. And so the Word has to be of prime importance. Now, if I was doing a class on creation, we could look at that and compare it with science and look at all the different views and how these things happen, etc., etc. But uh, we're just taking a survey of Genesis. I do think, though, the text stands on its own. And then whatever people say today, remember, we don't have all the information. So every day, they're discovering something new. I'll just give you one quick example before we finish. You know, a guy discovered DNA in a dinosaur fossil. DNA is not supposed to last that long. In a university in California, just down the road from where I went to seminary, he discovered DNA. You know what they did? They fired him. Because he published the article about it, and they fired him. And then he sued them, and they finally admitted they were wrong. But you know why they fired him? Yeah, they didn't like what he said. But he showed, I mean, he had slices. Uh, I don't remember how they examined it, but, but they had done all the steps, all the work. It had been accepted in a scientific journal, peer-reviewed and everything. And they just, hey, you sound like a creationist or intelligent design guy. And he is. He's a Christian. So that helped them boot him out the door. But he won that judgment. And uh, yeah, DNA is not supposed to last that long. I don't know. How long does it last, Liesl? DNA? How long does it last in the ground? Thousands of years, maybe? It's not supposed to last millions of years. It's not supposed to. But yet it's there, which indicates that that fossil is what? Not that old. The fossil is not that old. That's what it indicates. So, well, let's close. We have a, a few more interpretive issues we'll pick up with next week, and then we'll start with the book of Exodus. Lord, I am thankful you've revealed to us creation. You've taught us how things came to be, that you created everything perfect, even mankind originally was perfect. And yet Adam and Eve, they chose to sin. They fell into sin. So much has happened since then. But you've always had your people. You've always preserved your people. You've saved them by your grace. And we're thankful that the book of Genesis tells us this story. Help us to read it with a believing heart. Help us to read it knowing that your word is authoritative and it is sufficient. So we praise you for that. In the name of our Lord, amen.